Well, good morning, Midwestern family, and it is a great honor to be here. I love this school. Uh, we are your sister seminary at Southeastern, and we pray for you and are grateful for all the many good and wonderful things that are happening here. And uh, I have great love as well for your president, for the faculty that is here. You are in a wonderful place uh, to be prepared to serve the Lord in whatever ministry uh, he has called you to. And I'm especially honored to be a part of a lectureship that um, is named after one of my heroes in the ministry, as it is for many of you, Charles Spurgeon. And uh, my wife uh, last night said, so you're going to do two lectures? I said, I am, honey. Are you going to be boring? And uh, I said to her, I hope not. I, I will do my best not to be. And so you'll have to be the judge of that uh, after I finish today and also tomorrow. But this morning, I want you to return to the passage that was read by uh, Dr. Allen a moment ago, 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to begin with verse 14 and take us through chapter 4, verse 5. And my title for this first message is this, Biblical Inspiration an expositional proclamation, a divine marriage made in heaven. Biblical inspiration and expositional proclamation, a divine marriage made in heaven. In March the 11th, 1888, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon entitled The Infallibility of Scripture. And in that sermon, Spurgeon, I think, brought together perfectly my thesis this morning, and that is a divinely inspired Bible absolutely requires and mandates faithful biblical preaching. And in that particular message, Spurgeon said, and I quote, We preach because the mouth of the Lord hath spoken. It would not be worth our while to speak what Isaiah had spoken, if in it there was nothing more than Isaiah's thought. Neither should we care to meditate hour after hour upon the writings of Paul, if there was nothing more than Paul in them. We feel no imperative call to expound and to enforce what has been spoken by men, but since the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. It is woe unto us if we preach not the gospel. We come to you with thus saith the Lord, and we should have no justifiable motive for preaching our lives away if we have not this message. The true preacher, the man whom God has commissioned, delivers his message with awe and trembling because the mouth of the Lord has spoken." John MacArthur, whom uh, Dr. Allen mentioned a moment ago, gave the inaugural lecture here, himself has put this same pair together, biblical inspiration and faithful proclamation. I quote, the only logical response to an errant scripture is to preach expositionally. By expositionally, I mean preaching in such a way that the meaning of the Bible passage is presented entirely and exactly as it was intended by God. Now, what I want to do this morning is simply walk us through these verses, make seven observations about why it is that we preach the Bible expositionally. Why is it that we give the Bible a privileged place and status in our churches? Why is it 
that we treat the Bible special and unique? And furthermore, why is it that we then believe we have a mandate from God to preach the Bible faithfully? And I would argue to preach the Bible expositionally. Let me share quickly for you then this morning seven observations about why I believe we must preach the Bible expositionally. Number one, we preach the Bible expositionally because it is what God used to lead us to Jesus. Look again at chapter 3, verse 14 and verse 15. But as for you, and of course what Paul is doing is drawing a contrast between those that have been deceived in verse 13 with Timothy who has received a faithful message in verse 14 and verse 15. But as for you, in contrast... Continue in what you have learned, number one, and number two, firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, let me note that in our passage, we will see that the Bible is referred to as sacred writings in verse 15. The scriptures in verse 16 and the word that is to be preached in chapter 4 and verse 2. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 5, you learn that Timothy was brought to faith through the ministry of his mother and his grandmother. His grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice had been those who had taught him, who had faithfully communicated to him what is called the sacred scriptures in verse 15. And I love the fact that he tells us that it is the sacred scriptures that are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, let me make a couple of observations. Number one. Timothy never left the teachings that he learned from his grandmother and his mother. And I would admonish all of you today that are here in this seminary that are reading brilliant theologians and brilliant biblical scholars to never leave those who love you most and who perhaps were the very ones who led you to faith in Jesus Christ. I remember listening to Timothy George lecture a number of years ago. Uh, Dr. George eventually made his way to Harvard University where he received his PhD, but he shared in a lecture, I never left the teachings that I received from my grandmother sitting on her knee, listening to her teach me the Bible. You know, a lot of us will go away from our mothers and our fathers and our grandparents, and we will go to prestigious schools. Some of you may even leave here and go to Ivy League institutions or maybe make your way across Europe, uh, the sea to Europe and, and study there. And I would just to get admonished, you be careful. Uh, don't be led astray by those who don't love you, who don't really care about you. Don't leave the teachings that you received from those who love you and care for you. I fall into that camp. Uh, I am doing uh, what I do now. I'm here today because of the influence, first and foremost, of a godly mother who loved me and taught me the gospel and taught me the word of God. And her daddy, 
who was a very simple farmer with a fifth grade education, but loved the Bible and loved the Word of God and would teach me and pray for me. And those uh, influences never, ever left me. And I praise God and pray that they, that they never will. But I also want to make the observation that when he refers to the sacred writings, he was clearly talking about the Old Testament. And brothers and sisters, we need to remind ourselves that when we treat the Bible and teach the Bible, including the Old Testament, we do not teach the Old Testament like a Jewish rabbi. No, we remind ourselves that all of Scripture is Christian Scripture from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And when people say, well, you can't find the gospel in the Old Testament, I would simply add, you must be reading a different Old Testament than the one that we've been given. Because the Old Testament has the gospel in it all the way through. And it was this sacred writing which the parent and grandparent of Timothy had used to make him wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today, and I make the assumption that almost all of you are, and you are here as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have repented of your sin, you put your faith and trust in His perfect work of atonement on the cross and His glorious resurrection, you're here because somebody taught you the gospel. And you're here because somebody faithfully taught you the gospel in the Word of God. And so we preach the Bible expositionally because it is what God used to lead us to Jesus. But number two, we preach the Bible expositionally because it is divinely inspired by God. Don Carson as well said the entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And Augustine would add the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. Now let me raise the question, from home, then who sent them? The Father did. And the Father, who is the perfect God, sent us His Word, and therefore it is natural, in fact it is expected, that Paul would write the words of verse 16, not some, not most, but all Scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, The New American Standard says that all Scripture is inspired by God. And of course, this is the Greek word theonoustos. Uh, God breathed is a very good rendering of that particular phrase. Of course, those of us that have now been studying theology at this school know that when it comes to the doctrine of the Bible uh, and the doctrine of inspiration, there are various views as to exactly what that means. Uh, When I was in graduate school, I actually attended a secular school, the University of Texas at Arlington. I had a professor uh, that was a former Jesuit priest, uh, and he shared the very first night of class, and I, I remember it very distinctly when I, quote, could no longer peddle the product, I gave up the business. And he left the priesthood, And he got involved in higher education in a secular university. Well, I had him for a class uh, called Faith and Reason. And I remember one evening, a young lady in the class, as he was talking about uh, some theological topic, bottom line, he was very much uh, immersed in the uh, teachings of Rudolf Bultmann, the German theologian who gave us a demythologizing approach to the Bible. Uh, She raised her hand and she said, well, Dr. Porter... Uh, Do you believe the Bible is inspired? And with kind of a cynical look on his face, he said, oh, I believe the Bible is absolutely inspired. In fact, it's the most inspiring book I've ever read. It's even more inspiring than Shakespeare. 
Well, if you are paying attention, there's a big difference between saying the Bible is inspired and saying the Bible is inspiring. Well, she was perceptive, and she said, well, uh, Dr. Porter, could I ask you a question about a very basic biblical doctrine, the, the virgin birth? Do you believe in the virgin birth? And again, with sort of a cynical look on his face, he said, well, are you speaking uh, historically and biologically, or are you speaking theologically? She responded, well, I didn't know there was a difference. He responded, oh, there's a big difference. If you're asking me, do I believe the Bible uh, teaches the virgin birth and that the virgin birth actually occurred historically and biologically, blank, no. Things like that don't happen. If, on the other hand, you're asking me, do I believe that the virgin birth was a uh, theological construct Uh, that was created by the early church to emphasize the importance and the significance of the life of Jesus uh, upon their lives, then yes, I can theologically affirm that particular doctrine. Now, let me just say this to all of you. When you talk to someone, and maybe as a pastor, Uh, they're going to maybe teach in your Bible study program, or maybe you're even considering bringing them on your staff. I know that Dr. Allen and the deans here, when when we interview people at Southeastern like here, uh, if someone says to me, well, I believe the Bible is inspired, uh, I got news for you. That's not good enough. Uh, I want to know more. Uh, Would you be comfortable? Indeed, would you be enthusiastic? Would you indeed be convictionally committed to the proposition that the Bible is not just inspired, but it is infallible? It is inerrant. Uh, It is inspired and infallible to the very words and letters and parts of a letter. And if you can't affirm that, then not only can you not teach at my seminary, you ought not to be allowed to teach in a Sunday school. We need to recognize that in the day in which we live, people are very playful and very elastic with the words that they might use. And you've got people that are liberal. You've got people that are neo-orthodox. You've got people that are neo-evangelical, all of whom would say, I believe the Bible is inspired, but they do not believe and mean by that. I hope what you believe and what you mean by that. I've always believed that the best way to describe the Bible is it is the Word of God written in the words of men. It is both a divine book and a human book, but ultimately the Bible is the Word of God. A number of years ago, uh, when I first went to Southern Seminary, I had the honor of serving at Southern Seminary from 1996 to 2004 as the academic vice president and the dean. Uh, when I went in 1996, Southern was in the throes of a very radical transformation theologically from being a very liberal theological institution to a very evangelical, uh, historically grounded Baptist institution. And one of the things that I felt was my job was to get to know the faculty. And uh, many of them that were there at that time were certainly not where I was theologically. They were not where Dr. Moeller was theologically. They were not where the school was headed. But nevertheless, it was my responsibility to get to know them and to the best of my ability, love them and, and serve them. And one particular professor uh, who taught New Testament uh, was well known. 
very well known for his liberal theological uh, proclivities. In fact, he had actually studied in Germany under Rudolf Bultmann. And so we went to lunch one day, and as we sat down, he looked at me and he said, uh, Dr. Aiken, can I ask you a question? And I said, well, you can ask me anything you'd like. And he said, I just want to know, how is it that you believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible given your education? I mean, you went to a, a very reputable state university. I know you must have studied with really good scholars at that school. And I, I just don't understand how someone with your education could still believe the Bible is infallible and inerrant. And I, I'm just curious. He then kind of called himself and he said, well, I, I'm sorry that that was kind of condescending. I didn't mean to be condescending. And I don't think he meant to be condescending, but it was condescending. But anyway, that's okay. Uh, I'm a big boy. I can handle that. And I said, well, you know, uh, and I won't tell you his name, but I said, I can answer your question, but I don't know that you'll be all that impressed with it, but I'll be glad to tell you why I still believe the Bible is the word of God from beginning to end. I said, number one, when I was 10 years old, I got saved. I got saved. And I said, you know, uh, when you get converted, it just makes a difference, changes things. I said, secondly, when I was about 19 years old, I recommitted my life to Christ. I, I, I share with you all quickly this morning, I didn't walk with the Lord as a teenager. And most of my friends in high school did not know that I was a Christian. But when I was 19, I recommitted my life to Christ. And in many ways, my recommitment was more life-changing than my conversion. And as a result of that, I kind of fell in love with Jesus all over again. And I wanted to think like Jesus thinks about everything. And so I told this professor, I said, when I went to the Bible and I began to look at it, I discovered that Jesus believed every word in the Bible. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, that not a letter or part of a letter will pass away until all of it's fulfilled. He said in John 10, 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. He said in John 17, 17, praying to his father in that high priestly prayer, speaking of God's word, your word is truth. And then I did something probably a little mischievous, but I felt like he deserved it. So I said, you know, um, you went to Germany and studied under Rudolf Bultmann, didn't you? And folks, he lit up like a Christmas tree. I mean, he was so proud of that. He said, I not only went to Germany and studied with Bultmann, I used to go to church with him every Sunday. I said, well, you know, I've read Bultmann. And you know, Bultmann in his New Testament theology said that Jesus had the same view of the Bible as any first century Jew. I said, you know, the only difference between Bultmann and me is that Bultmann thought Jesus was wrong. But I think Jesus was right. And if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then he's God, and that means he's right about everything. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I've never thought of it like that before. That does make sense. And we had lunch. And folks, here's the deal. Listen to me now. If you ever come to a point in your life that you no longer believe the Bible is indeed the inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of God, just recognize you're saying two things. Number one, you're saying Jesus was wrong about the Bible. And number two, you're saying I'm smarter than Jesus when it comes to what the Bible is. And I would submit to you that both of those are very dangerous 
roads to walk down. No, we preach the Bible expositionally because it is the divinely inspired Word of God. Number three, we preach the Bible expositionally because God uses it to mature us. Look at what he says there in the latter part of verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God, and it is profitable. The NIV says it is useful, and it is profitable and useful for four things. Number one, for teaching. Uh, number two, for reproof. Number three, for training, uh, for correction. And number four, for training in righteousness. Now, I like the way the message paraphrases it. Uh, the Bible is inspired and it is profitable for showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, and training us to live God's way. One man said the Bible is for teaching what to believe, what is right. It is for reproof, what not to believe, what is not right. It is for correction, how not to live. And it is for training in righteousness, how you and I should live with this as the goal that we would be competent, the ESV, complete the Christian Standard Bible. The message says so that we are put together and shaped up for every good Work And it is the Bible and the Bible alone that God uses to mature us so that we look like Christ and we serve in His strength and we serve in His power. And it is God's Word that matures us. Again, perhaps like me, uh, you came to Christ at an early age and for whatever reason you didn't grow very much in the Lord in your teenage years or maybe even into your early adult years. And I promise you, one of the reasons is you weren't like me. You weren't in the Word. Oh, you might have been reading it occasionally devotionally, but that's not being in the Word. I mean studying it. I mean letting it marinate in your soul, letting it be something you meditate on day and night. No, again, when God got a hold of my life as a 19-year-old, not only did I fall madly in love with Jesus, but I fell madly in love with the Bible. In fact, I, I don't have it with me, but I could bring you to my house and I could pull off my shelf an old Schofield reference Bible that somebody gave it to me. Uh, I'm not advocating everything in there, but uh, I still think, you know, that the, the coming of our Lord is imminent. And if you don't, God bless you. I feel sorry for you. But anyway, I can go pull that Bible and take you to the letters of Paul and what I started doing was underlining things in the books that I was reading that I liked. And folks, hand on the Bible. If you get in there and you start reading through Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, you discover I underlined every verse. Every single word of every verse because I just fell madly in love with the Bible. And it is then that God began to change my life and mature my life because this is the book and the only book that God uses to mature us, to conform us to the image of His Son. But number four, we preach the Bible expositionally because it will prepare us for the judgment. Chapter 4, verse 1, really is a bad chapter division because Paul's argument is very clear, isn't it? If the Bible is indeed the inspired Word of God, then we must treat that inspired Word in a very specific kind of a way. 
And what he does in chapter 4 and verse 1 is actually bring Timothy under a solemn oath, both before the Father and the Son. I charge you. I give you this mandate first in the presence of God, that is the Father, and secondly, of Christ Jesus, whom God has committed judgment, who will judge both the living believers, the dead, unbelievers, and he will do so at the appearing and of his kingdom. Every one of us that is here today that God has called to preach his word should never, ever forget. Someday you and I will stand before God. And we will give an account for how faithfully we have handled his inspired word. That's why James chapter 3 and verse 1 reminds us not many of you should be teachers. Because you indeed will go through a greater judgment and faithfully preaching the word will prepare you for that judgment. But number five, we preach expositionally because it will convict us and it will also encourage us. In verses 2 through 5, Paul peppers his text with no less than nine imperatival statements. These are not suggestions. Uh, These are not things that you perhaps might give some consideration to on some occasion. No, these are expectations of the Apostle Paul in terms of how we carry out, and fulfill our ministry. And what does he say there in verse 2? Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Do so by being ready in season and out of season. The idea is when you are wanting to do it and when you're not wanting to do it. In other words, you don't just preach the Word when you feel like it. You preach the Word every time you stand in a pulpit to minister to God's people. There are going to be days where you don't feel like it. There are going to be days where you've taken a beating throughout the week and you just wonder, is it really worth it? Is it really worth putting up with all of this stuff? Again, your president, as well as my provost, have both written books on calling. Calling. And let me tell you something. If you don't have settled in your heart and soul that God has called you to this divine task and assignment, when it gets tough, you may think about quitting. You may think about walking away. But if you know in your soul that you have been called by God, you know you can't do anything else but preach His Word. And you do it when you feel like it. And you do it when you don't feel like it as well. And in the process of doing it, you reprove and you rebuke and you exhort. Sometimes you have to get in their face. Other times you have to come alongside of them and put your arm around them and encourage them. And you do so. I love that closing phrase in verse 2. You do so with complete patience and also with enduring teaching, and it is because the Bible convicts us and encourages us that we preach it expositionally. But very quickly, number six, we preach the Bible expositionally because it provides the sound doctrine for which we are to live by. Look at verse three and verse four. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. I love that word sound. It's the word hygienia. We get our word hygiene from it. You could translate it, they will not endure healthy teaching, but... Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Welcome to America in 2023. 
Welcome to America in 2023, where there are preachers by the boatloads who will preach messages that will tickle the ears and stir the hearts and please people to do what? To suit their own passions. And my challenge to you, as was Paul's challenge to Timothy, you see, one of the things we need to do when we study the Bible is what I call a mirror reading of the text. In other words, why would Paul tell Timothy, make sure that you teach with complete patience and teaching? Make sure that you understand that there's coming a day when people will not endure healthy doctrine. Make sure that you be on the guard, recognizing there'll be others out there around you that perhaps will build bigger ministries, have a bigger church, have a larger crowd, And they accumulated all of that because they gave the people what they wanted rather than giving the people what they need. And brothers, you know that the only book that has what they need is this book right here, the Bible, the Word of God. And therefore, we're not interested in pleasing people. We're interested in pleasing God. I had the joy of speaking to a number of your PhD students a little while ago, and one of them just asked me the question, how do you deal with it when people are critical of you and and people misrepresent you and you get maybe an ugly email or something like that? And I said, well, you know, to be honest with you, you get older, it doesn't bother you as much as it used to. That's, That's one advantage of getting older. But I said, secondly, if my wife loves me, if my four sons love me, if my grandkids still think I'm great, I don't really give a rip what anybody else thinks. I I really don't care. But then I said, but you know, many years ago, I was taught by a mentor of mine, just live by this dictum and you'll be fine in ministry. All that matters in life is that you please God. All that matters in life is that you please God. And if your goal every day is to please the Heavenly Father, the, the nipping, uh, the, 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 the criticism, uh, folks throwing things at you on social media, it won't bother you because you know you're pleasing the one that matters most. And here's the deal, guys. You can't please everybody anyway. So why would you be so stupid as to try? Just please the one that matters most and be faithful to teach his word, which brings us to number seven. We preach the Bible expositionally because it will enable us to fulfill the ministry that God has given us. He tells us that they will wander away to these false teachers. They will turn away from listening to the truth and even wander into myths. But as for you, in contrast, always be level-headed, sober-minded. Number two, going back to chapter 3 and verse 12, recognize you're going to endure suffering. There are going to be times when you are being beat up, and there are going to be times when you get discouraged, and there are going to be times when you get down, and you're going to endure suffering. But keep in mind the priorities. Do the work of an evangelist, and be faithful to the end. Fulfill, finish your ministry. I'm 66 now. I see the finish line more clearly than I see the starting line. And over and over and over, I ask God, Lord, by your grace, by your grace, let me finish well. You see, guys, those of you that are here, you're so young, most of you, you're running pretty well, if I might use the analogy of a racetrack that makes a single loop, the 400. 
You're doing pretty well in the first hundred meters. Some of you are even doing pretty well halfway through. But it's one thing to start well and run well for a season, but it's something altogether different to finish well. And my prayer for me and my prayer for you is that all of us would finish well. And how do we make sure that we do that? By recognizing God has given us a perfect book. And it is this book and this book only that will transform lives, bring people in conformity to Jesus, and then send them out with a heart and a passion to go among the nations and tell them the same message that God used to save us, the message we found in this book. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in it, that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves, and that gospel is in all of your word. And I thank you, Lord, that because we have a perfect book, we do indeed have a mandate from heaven, a solemn oath placed upon us to preach the word. And yes, Lord, sometimes, like in this day, it won't be popular, it won't be well-received, People will not want it, but Lord, help us never forget it is what people need. It's what changed us, and it is what will change them. And so, Lord, my prayer for this seminary and for the men in particular that you've called to pastor and to serve as elders, that, Lord, they indeed will be faithful to your word, preaching that word, knowing that indeed they can trust every single syllable of it, Because as Augustine said, it is a love letter from home sent by a loving, perfect, heavenly Father. And we praise you and thank you for giving this to us and making our prayer in the saving name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.